Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And it's Saturday. You know what that means. The vault door hangs open. The void is within. Will you walk in? Well, of course we're going to walk into the void. Uh, The question is, what are we going to find this week? Well, this week we're going to revisit an episode from Tuesday, December 1st, 2015. So this is a couple years old now. This is the first part of a two-part episode. So the first part is going to rerun today. Mm -hmm. And then the next part is going to rerun next Saturday. So if you want to hear part two of this older episode, you can go back in the catalog and, and, and get the old episode. Or you can just wait till next Saturday and we'll put it back up for you. But this episode is called... Called Tetris Syndrome, A Mind Made of Blocks. It's fun that this episode came out uh, around Christmas time because I, I realize every Christmas I think back to Tetris because it was a game that I received as a Christmas gift and it had that wonderful uh, chiptune version of the Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy. Dude, we talk about this in the episode. Yeah. Don't spoil everything. Okay, well, uh, I'm just throwing it out there. If uh, It's the perfect post-Christmas listen as well. Well, even if you are not interested in puzzle games or video games or anything like that, I think this was actually a really interesting topic. Uh, we had a lot of fun exploring it, so we hope you enjoy the Tetris Syndrome episode. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And before we get going here, I just want to shout out a quick reminder to everybody. Go on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com if you want to learn more about the show, you want to find the old episodes, you want to explore our blog content, our video content, or links out to various social media accounts such as Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. And also, hey, if you listen to us through iTunes, through the Apple system, uh, why don't you head on over there give us a little love on the review there. Uh, it'll help out the algorithm for our show, uh, and it's a good way to give back and ensure that we get to keep putting out this kind of content for you. So this episode today is going to be about Tetris, and it's going to be part one of a two-part series that we're doing on the science of Tetris, the ancient mystery puzzle of the universe. Yeah, so the first slice is uh, mostly dealing with the power of Tetris and the history of Tetris. Second part is going to dive into some possible uses for that power and knowledge. So, Robert, I have a perhaps pretty weird question for you. All right, hit me with a pretty weird question. If there were no thinking beings in the universe, Mm -hmm. would numbers exist? Ooh, this is a great uh, question. Yeah, are numbers a human discovery or or, are numbers a human invention? Right, like the number seven. Is that an inherent feature of the universe or is that just sort of like an idea we've come up with to describe what happens when there are seven of something? I tend to see it as kind of a mix of the two. Like, yes, there there is an inherent number sense to the universe. But obviously there's a, there's a human ordering system layered on top of that so that we can interact with it and understand it. Yeah, I think that's a sensible way of looking at it. But there are certainly people who uh, I think would be called Platonists in mm-hmm. this sense. They're Platonic in the sense that they believe in the real existence of abstract objects that are inherent to the universe, like numbers, mathematical objects, the theorems that those things actually do exist as objects in some sense, even though they don't have physical matter uh, in any way. And I sort of feel the same way the Platonists feel about numbers. I feel that way about Tetris. Ah. So tell me your personal Tetris history. Well, I 
I think it is ideal that this uh, episode is publishing during December because for me, there's always something kind of Christmassy about Tetris because I got it back in the day on old school Nintendo. I think I got it for Christmas, so mm-hmm. it arrived in the Christmas season. And some of the wonderful music um, that was on that game included, um, I believe, Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairies from right. The Nutcracker, which, of course, is a Christmas-themed uh, uh, ballet, uh, a ballet that I had to set through or, or got to set through, however you want to look <laughs> at it, many, many times as I had two sisters who were both involved in dance. Oh, it wasn't one of those things where your school took you to the Nutcracker every year. No, I had to, I think, go every year to see uh, one of my two sisters uh, perform in it. And it, it, and the Nutcracker is an interesting thing to have to sit through because the first, it's, oh. it's totally front-loaded. The first half has a Rat King. It has battles. It has a fabulous Candyland Discovery weird uh, uncles with an eye patch. And then the second half is just... Just a, a, a slumber fest of various uh, dances that are performed for the the victors. Like they've already won. It's just all complete afterthought. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah, it does have a lot of great hallucinatory imagery. I recall though. Mm-hmm. I I remember that there's a lady with a huge dress and a bunch of creatures come out from under her dress. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, the Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy was on the NES version. I played the Game Boy version, and I also associate this with Christmas. I think maybe because I associate most video games I played as a child with Christmas because, you know, Christmas is when you get the game. Right. And then you have that huge uh, uh, allotment of time and to yeah. devote to the game. You can just completely meld your brain to this game play it nine hours a day because there's no school and you're you know your parents don't want to deal with you during <laughs> uh so yeah i i totally had that i had a couple other games for the game boy too back in the early 90s when i was a kid i i had tetris but I also had super mario land i don't know if you played that on the game boy it, it involves weird it, it kind of like ancient egyptian themes hmm that are, it was, I don't think I played that one. It was no. sort of unique Mario game. And then I also had a video game called Altered Space, which involved mm-hmm. isometric movements that was very hard to control. Uh, and mostly you would just fall on spikes and run out of air and die. You play a little astronaut who has limited okay. air. Because <laughs> I was initially imagining some sort of Timothy Leary-themed game there. And, oh, no, that would have been wonderful. Like, <laughs> as a kid, I had the, the game version of the William Hurt movie where... <laughs> takes ayahuasca and gets in the sensory deprivation tank. You know, another thing about uh, about having it, I wonder if this is the case with you as well, I had some horrible Nintendo games uh, yes. on my system. Like I had Mission Impossible, which was an impossibly difficult game, and then a few other games that really had limited appeal, even to me. But Tetris was a game that... I played like crazy. My mm-hmm. sister, my sister who was old enough to play video games, played like crazy. And even my my dad got in on the act and was playing Tetris. And it just it it ensnared all of us. Yeah, it does have this very universal appeal, which has been chalked up to several different factors from people we're going to talk about mm-hmm. later in this episode. But the reason I mentioned those other games I had on the Game Boy was going back to this very first thing I said, which is that I sensed even as a child that there was something very, very different between Tetris and these other games, even popular games like, you know, the Mario game. I mean, like, it didn't have to be a bad game. Other games, to me, felt like human artifacts. They felt invented uh, in the sense that, you know, that that a, a wheelbarrow is invented. Tetris, to me, felt like a fundamental, inherent aspect of the universe that was an ancient secret mystery 
And it just seemed to me impossible to believe there was ever a time when there wasn't Tetris <laughs> woven into the fabric of physics and mathematics. So you're, you're basically imagining a scenario where the... Um uh, the hominids in 2001 A Space Odyssey are looking uh -huh. up. Instead of seeing a complete um, uh, monolith, they're seeing... Uh, the long bar, yeah, the four... Yes. They're seeing the Tetris shapes fall and form the monolith. Yeah, and it's got to be the long bar because that's the most coveted piece mm -hmm. among avid Tetris players. As that's, long as you've prepared yourself yeah. for uh, its insertion. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> the, how true that is. No, I see what, I see what you're saying exactly. This um, it, it feels perfectly natural like playing tetris is like coming home on some level uh -huh. um I, I definitely remember playing it and being obsessed with it and and was just startled to realize this was a new thing uh -huh. in the world yeah that, i couldn't believe i mean this is a game that was invented in 1984 yeah but it didn't feel that way i even even old old games like go and checkers and chess i mean the, these old board games still felt like artifacts. They still felt invented by humans in a way that Tetris didn't. Tetris felt like an ancient mystery. And I'm still not quite sure exactly why that is, but I think throughout these couple of episodes we're going to do on the science of Tetris, we, we may have some leads yeah. about why it feels that way to me at least, and I think to, to some other people too. Or it's simply the case, it could be, just be the case that God itself is the long bar or or some sort of multi-dimensional um uh shape that we can't quite understand but but fits into all possible tetris scenarios uh but indeed as we explore here we're also going to get into some of the recreational mathematical roots of tetris and even those don't go back uh tremendously far uh, yeah. they only go back into the early uh, 20th century Nevertheless, I insist there is an ancient mystery at the secret of this journey, and maybe by the end we'll unlock it. But I, I think we should actually look at the game Tetris now, its history, and where it comes from. And the first thing I've got to start with is uh, sort of incidental to the game of Tetris itself. But did you know that the the famous Tetris music... theme right there is based on a Russian folk song that actually has lyrics. I did not know this. No. <laughs> the Tetris theme with lyrics. I love it so much. I looked it up. Uh, the, this is the Wikipedia translation, so this may not be the most accurate, but, but the first verse is, Oh, my crate is so full. I've got chintz and brocade. Take pity, oh sweetie, of this lad's shoulder. Nice. Seems kind of appropriate for the game where you're, you're stacking the blocks forever. <laughs> <laughs> my crate, it overfloweth. <laughs> That, uh, is all, that is a revelation for me. Yeah, yeah but surely Tetris didn't just uh, appear out of thin air. I mean, obviously, it grew out of some kind of puzzle tradition. Yes, yes. And so, I mean, certainly you can, if you want to, to take the roots of Tetris and extend them back just completely geometrically, yes, you can get back into the history of geometry itself. But uh, for the most part, we can begin the, uh, the birth of Tetris with uh, something that was called a... Pentomino. This is an arrangement of five unit squares or cubes all joined along their edges. Um, there are 12 free pentominoes, 
they're shaped roughly like the letters V T W X U Z F P I N Y L. That, that's funny. I looked up some of these designations of like the letter to the pentomino, mm-hmm. and some of them make sense. Like the W pentomino looks like a W. The Y pentomino looks like a long bar with a lump on the side. Yeah, yeah. Some of them are a little, little more abstract. They're uh, eighteen one-sided uh, pentominoes and sixty-three fixed pentominoes. Okay, so essentially, though, the pentomino is if if you take some squares mm-hmm. and you line them up so that the sides are touching in one way or another. How many different shapes can you make out of five squares? And th- exactly. that's what it is. Yeah, and then you you had pentomino puzzles that were all about arranging them together into a shape. Uh, usually something, you know, a rectangle, something fairly simple. Now, the first published pentomino puzzle of this nature, uh, even though it was not named as such, appeared in Henry Dadini's The Canterbury Puzzles in 1907. Is that a companion to the Canterbury Tales? Um, if anything, it would be the, the, the section in the back with a crossword puzzle, too, I guess. Yeah. Um, no, this was basically a, p- a puzzle publication. Uh, and uh, in this particular one uh, that uh, Dundini put together, you had to fit 12 pentomino shapes together with one square tetromino, and I'll explain the terminology here in a minute. That's four squares as you encounter in Tetris later mm-hmm. on. You had to join these together on an 8 by 8 checkerboard. Okay, so you've got like a puzzle space that's the board, and the problem is you've got all these pieces that you've got to fit into the space so that they're not, you know, poking out the sides or something. Right, and like any good game, um, there's a, there's part of it is the mechanics, which I've described, but the other part was the fluff, and the fluff here was uh, that uh, William the Conqueror had out of rage, broken a chessboard, uh, and you had to have to reassemble the chessboard, that these uh, each of these uh, shapes is a piece of the shattered board. Oh, the story behind the game. Yeah. I kind of love that when there's a game that's not like an adventure or action game with characters, but it's a puzzle game, and yet it has a backstory. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's essential. I, I don't want to play a game that's just pure abstract mathematics and uh, mechanics. I want some cool fluff in there. That's how I get engaged with it. Of course, the exception would be Tetris. Exactly, yes, because there is... We'll we'll discuss some that have some fluff added on, and sometimes the fluff is delightful, but Mm -hmm. for the most part, Tetris is the exception to the rule. Okay, but so William the Conqueror gets a chessboard, smashes it into a bunch of pentominoes, and you've got to fit them back together? Right, though, of course, they're not called pentominoes at the time. It's not until 1953 that American professor Solomon W. Golom actually coins the term. So what he did is he took the word domino, mm-hmm. which, of course, we know is a little uh, a little block that you line up and play dominoes with, or you do cascading it's dominoes. The guy who makes the pizza, yeah. Exactly. That that sort of domino. So he took the word domino, and then he anted, he treated it kind of whimsically as if it was diomino, as if omino were a shape, and die referred to the number oh, of squares or cute. cubes making it up. Because there are two squares in a domino. Exactly. So yeah. he said, what if there were other ominoes? Uh, so... In this case, uh, a pentomino is penta, or five, plus omino. Uh, likewise, we already mentioned tetromino, which would be tetra, four, plus omino, right? Um, and, uh, and he also threw out just a general polyominoes, uh, a term for these various constructions, depending on how many different square or cube elements are making them up. So there could be like sextominoes or septominoes. Exactly. Though I imagine as you go higher and higher up the list of cardinal numbers there, the number of possible shapes just explodes, right? Mm-hmm. Because as you add more squares to move around in different positions, you could probably make an 
ultimately infinite number of shapes. Yeah, like, I mean, the, the bigger ones are going to resemble full-blown levels from video games or, you know, or dungeoning adventures from Dungeons & Dragons with yeah. each of the cubes, right? Um, now, all of this comes to a head publicly with his 1954 article, Checkerboards and Polyominoes in American Mathematical Monthly. And this, this really came out, this kick-started a lot of interest in uh, these shapes and the kind of puzzles you could have with them. Okay. So, pentomino puzzles, good stuff, big business. Yeah, well, I mean, as big business as, as right. you're going to have in <laughs> recreational mathematics in the mid-20th century. Yeah. But but it's certainly... We're catches, not talking about Marlboros here. Right. But it's still, it's catching on. It's It already has an addictive property to it. And then in 1958, it actually launches off the pen and paper, off the, the table, and into uh -huh. the wor world of computers, because it, at this point, we end up with a computer program that generates solutions for an 8 by 8 polyomino puzzle. So we're already obsolete. Yeah, yeah, we're already getting the, the human element out of it, and we're already seeing it take off into the world of computer programming at a very early stage. So I imagine if you're just trying to cram pieces together into a checkerboard and you've got a fixed number of pieces and a fixed board size, there are a limited number of solutions, right? Yeah, according to the University of Victoria Department of Computer Sciences, it's now known that there are 2,339 solutions for the 6x10 rectangle, 1,010 solutions for the 5x12 rectangle, 368 solutions for the 4x15 rectangle, and two solutions for the 3x20 rectangle. Oh. So, so yeah, this is, you see this, this idea, this new um, uh, type of shape puzzle just taking off in the world of recreational mathematics, uh, finding a war warm home there. And uh, that's the sort of sort of soil from which this maddening uh, Tetris vine emerges. And you can the interesting thing here is you can even factor in some uh, some interesting non Tetris stuff here. For instance, John Horton Conway's 1970 Game of Life cellular automaton simulation. Whoa, what is that? Oh, um, I, I think we may have mentioned it on here in some past episodes, and we should probably discover it in more depth later on. But it's essentially a very simple uh, geometric based. Um, Simulation. Many of you may have seen images from this where it basically looks like crazy little Tetris shapes uh, moving around and changing form uh, on a screen. Sort of one of those uh, cell evolution simulators exactly. along those lines. Yeah, the big one, really. The, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's a fascinating topic unto its own, so we may have to come back on, on that one at a later date. Okay, well, you have laid the soil out of which, you, as you say, the vines of Tetris grow, but I think we should turn to the vines themselves, because what fascinating vines they are. Mm -hmm. A lot of people might not have guessed this, though some people probably already know the story. Uh, the creation of Tetris, strangely enough, takes place in a 1980s Soviet computing lab in Moscow, with a slightly bored artificial intelligence researcher discovering the ancient secret of Tetris under the ruse of testing computer hardware capabilities. <laughs> um, so the the creator of Tetris is named Alexei Pajitnov, and he was a computer programmer and artificial intelligence researcher working for the Academy of Science of the USSR, so the, the Soviet Union's own Academy of Science. And he was working in a lab that would occasionally be sent a new piece of computer hardware. And in th this case, in the case of Tetris, they were sent this thing called the Electronica 60. Ooh, it sounds fancy. Yeah, wonderful. And a part of Pajitnov's duties would be to create software to run on the new computers or the new hardware they're being sent 
in order to test what it was capable of. So to say like, oh, okay, yeah, this this computer's fine because it can run this demanding piece of software. A-okay. So in, in Pajitnov's own words, this became his, quote, excuse for making games, which, I mean, th- that's got to be a pretty cool job comparatively in the Soviet Union in 1984. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a pretty great situation anywhere where you find the way to make your job even more engaging or make it engaging to begin with without actually just completely knocking off and doing your own thing. Right. So Pajitnov's in this lab testing the Electronica 60, and what he comes up with to test it is Tetris. Tetris is one of these games he creates, and I don't know to what extent we really should try to describe Tetris because I feel like almost everybody who's going to be listening to this has seen Tetris yeah. If you haven't, you should go watch a video of somebody playing Tetris on yeah, YouTube or find or something. any number of official Tetris or Tetris knockoff uh, versions that you can just play online. Yeah, and... I, I found a free website. I don't know if this is legal. It's probably not, actually. But I found a website that has an emulator that will emulate the NES version of Ooh. Tetris that's uh, in browser, and it's pretty great. The NES version, I really like the graphics. On. Yeah, yeah. It was a great use of the you know simple graphics mm-hmm. to deliver the Tetris experience. Though I do still prefer the music from the Game Boy version. <laughs> uh, but Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy is good, too. E- either way, uh, you should you should play Tetris a little, get in the mood for this episode. Uh, you can pause right here, go do that, and come back if you like. Otherwise, we will continue. But basically what Tetris is, is you've got seven blocks of different shapes, and these are the tetrominoes that we were talking about earlier. And they fall from the top of the screen toward the bottom of the screen on a little playing area. And the player can move the blocks around left to right and can rotate them in increments of 90 degrees. So you can flip the piece and you can move it side to side. But what you can't do is stop it from falling. Mm -hmm. There's the inexorable creep toward the bottom of the screen. And so what the player does is arrange the blocks to form and then clear solid horizontal lines. Oh, yeah, that satisfying moment where you have blocks all the way across a single line, and then that that line just vanishes. Yeah, and so if the blocks stack up all the way to the top of the screen, the game is over. Interestingly enough, Pajitnov said that uh, originally the lines did not clear in the version of the game he was making, that you would just try to stack them, but he found that the screen filled up too quick. You know, Mm -hmm. you'd make these stacked rows... And eventually it reached the top of the screen. So then he came up with the idea of every time you created a solid row, having it vanish and, and just turn into magical abstract points. That, and, I think that's interesting because it you, you can see the, the roots of the uh, recreational mathematical puzzle there, right? Yes. Because you wouldn't have um, that much space if you were just filling this out on a sheet of paper. Yeah. Yeah, so if if the blocks stack up all the way to the top of the screen, of course, game's over. That That's your death in the game terms. Mm-hmm. And as the game goes on, the blocks begin to fall faster and faster, which, of course, makes it harder to fit them in as time goes on. And eventually, in most versions of the game, you get to something that the players would call a kill screen or a death screen, which is, in the NES version at least, level 29 or the transition between level 29 and 30, where the blocks just fall so fast, it's impossible to play anymore. Right. You, you cannot continue. Though, actually, before we did this episode, I watched a documentary called uh, The Ecstasy of Order about Tetris Champions, mm-hmm. that, which I recommend if, if you all at home want to watch it. It was really interesting. And there were a couple of players who do manage to get to level 30 in it. it. It's a very brief 
fleeting victory. Does it so the, the game itself does not stop and say, "Hey, you've won Tetris," but you merely you've made it to a threshold of survivability that no one else has reached. Right. Or it, the vast majority of players do not. It's reach. not like you've won. You've mm-hmm. still died. You've just died a little bit farther along the tra- the trail than anybody else has gone before. Okay. And that's an interesting thing about Tetris 2. You can never win. There is no winning. There's only getting farther before you die, which makes Tetris a lot like life. It is, yeah. And, and probably a good lesson for a young gamer uh-huh. to encounter, where you, it, especially if you're up against the impossibility of Mission Impossible, uh-huh. where there's just no getting to the end of yeah. it, and you just feel God, constantly like a Metal failure. Gear, these dogs yeah. won't stop. Well, now I'll play Tetris. It's like the experience of the game is, you're never going to get your money's worth out of that game because you're not getting to the end of it, to the narrative end of the game. But there is no narrative in, te- in Tetris other than the simple narrative of shapes coming at you, right. better stack them, and try to stave off the inevitable. Yeah, so what happened when Alexei Pajitnov made this game. So he claimed he was inspired by his love of puzzle games like Pentominoes, the ones we mm-hmm. were talking about before, and he he came up w- with the uh, mechanics of Tetris with Pentominoes in mind, but then he decided to go with Tetrominoes to simplify things, basically to to make the game simpler. Uh fun fact, since the Electronica 60 that he was using had very little in the way of graphical capabilities, the original shapes were made out of uh text characters. I think they were brackets. Huh. Okay, so, well, that would make sense. So falling shapes made out of brackets. Uh, I do yeah. want to throw in that if there there are plenty of other knockoffs of Tetris out there, and apparently some of them do use pentominoes rather than tetrominoes. Oh, dude, in preparing for this episode, I played one. Yeah. There's one online called Pentris that uses, not Pentrist, mm-hmm. but, but Pentris like Tetris. Yeah. And it uses pentominoes, and at least in the time I played it, it was significantly harder than Tetris. Yeah, yeah, I imagine it would be. Just one more piece. Likewise, if you were to play Tetris with simpler shapes, uh-huh. I, I imagine it would the game would fall apart too easily. Like, what if you were playing them with dominoes? That would be that would just be <laughs> base level way too easy, to yeah. the point of you would get bored of it almost immediately. Yeah, I think four really is the perfect number. I, 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 I will argue very strongly in that uh, in that proposition's defense. But anyway, Pajitnov recounts to The Guardian, where he, he told his own story about this. He says, quote, I pretended I was debugging my program, <laughs> but in truth, I just couldn't stop playing it. When other people tried it, they couldn't either. It was so abstract. That was its great quality. It appealed to everybody. And I think this may be something about why so many people can get into Tetris, even people who don't usually play video games. They can pick up Tetris and immediately feel at home and intrigued. And And I think it has something to do with the lack of representational nature of it. Mm-hmm. It's like geometrical art you might see in a mosque or something. You know, it's like it, it doesn't have characters or familiar uh, objects. It's just shapes and space and time and movement. Utterly universal. Yeah, yeah, completely devoid of any dependency on on its uh, uh, on its similarity to a real world scenario. It's completely in its own universe. Yeah. So what happens when you create an amazing and addictive game while uh, employed by the the, the Soviet Union? Uh, well, that was an interesting question for Pezhutnov, and he kind of feared what would happen 
if he tried to make money off of his game. So the game started getting passed around from place to place mm-hmm. in, in Russia. Uh, there, there were floppy disks of it that people were taking to different workplaces, and then everybody would get addicted to it and not do their jobs. Yeah. So <laughs> it, it sort of posed a problem. Eventually, it made its way to Hungary, and then from Hungary, it made its way to the rest of Europe, the United States, Japan, and the whole world. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, for for 10 years, Pejitnov ceded the, the game rights to the government, to the Soviet Union. And so he didn't really see much money from Tetris for a long time. But eventually, once that expired in the 90s, he got more involved. And uh, I'm not sure if how much money he eventually made off of Tetris. I, I hope. I hope it did well for him. Yeah, yeah, I hope so, too. I certainly remember seeing his name on even the NES because uh-huh. his ties, just your eyes were glued to the program and you couldn't help but notice anything uh, in the system that, that resembled the outside world, yeah. uh, such, as, uh, such as his name or St. Basil's Cathedral, which was on the loading screen. Yeah, or, yeah, if you did really well in the game, I think you could watch St. Basil's Cathedral being launched into space, oh, right? Oh, g- goodness gracious, yes, Didn't you that could. happen? Yes. Why? Oh, I haven't thought about that in forever. I never really uh, understood why that happens, but... Uh, just, was was it the idea that the cathedral is secretly an alien spaceship that has been planted on Earth? And yes, and it just it it had to use our brain power, the collective brain power of a Tetris obsessed planet, to uh, to actually launch it back into the stars. Yeah, but so Pajitnov gives a pretty cool perspective on the role Tetris played in the early consumer adoption of the computer. Uh, actually, he says. Tetris came along early and had a very important role in breaking down ordinary people's inhibitions in front of computers, which were scary objects to non-professionals used to pen and paper. But the fact that something so simple and beautiful could appear on screen destroyed that barrier. I like to think that's true. Uh, yeah, yeah, I would think so. I mean, you think of if you think back to early computer games too, some many, but not all of them were a bit abstract looking on the screen to the yeah. point where I could see them being very intimidating. Like I, I remember as a kid, we were at somebody's house and they had some sort of submarine simulation game and it only you really had to use your imagination to uh-huh. see the, any kind of actual submarine uh, uh, simulation going on. Yeah. Well, I mean, have you seen any of the old uh, Atari 2600 star Wars games where they're trying to represent the characters from star Wars or the ships from oh, star no, Wars, but you know, they've got a, a an AT-AT walker like in The Empire Strikes Back, and it's just, it's a big dog, or it's a, <laughs> it's a, or it's a horse. It's a four-legged animal of some kind, mm-hmm. and you're just like some pixels flying around shooting at it. And I don't want to uh, to criticize, uh, you know, limited graphics uh, and, and the importance of imagination no, in no, gaming, because some of my favorite gaming experiences that have yet uh, to be equaled by our, our heavy graphics age are some of those where... You had just enough graphics, uh, gra- graphical detail to give you an idea of what it was, and the rest was your imagination. So, Yeah, yeah, that, that's true. I just think that there's less of a gap when you're talking about uh, using limited graphics to do something abstract versus to do something that's supposed to be representational of images you recognize. Absolutely. But anyway, Tetris after this went on to become big business all around the world. It was eventually licensed from the Russians by a video game licensor named Hank Rogers, which led to what was, as I've said, in my opinion, the definitive version of the, <laughs> of Tetris with the definitive music, Tetris on the Game Boy. And uh, so in 1989, Nintendo released Tetris for the Game Boy and the NES and sold millions of copies. 
And then, of course, in 1990, uh, Tetris became the central game in the, do you remember these, the Nintendo World Championships? Oh, this is, uh, there was the Fred Savage movie, The Wizard? Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. that, so, I think it was all promotion okay. for, for that, yes. So did Tet- was Tetris in The Wizard? It's been so long since I've seen oh, it. Oh, you know what? I've never actually seen The Wizard. I remember virtually nothing. I think it was fairly it was, Wasn't unlockable, it just but... a commercial for the Power yeah, Glove? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> But this is the perfect game for for that kind of scenario, right? Because it's yeah. a, it's a, a test of uh, a true test of skill. Yeah, absolutely. I think it makes perfect sense for this to be the central game in a video game competition, because, like I say, it's so universal. It feels so core, so ancient. It's like the ultimate game. And there's something about playing Tetris that is so inherently human. One of the things, uh, an interesting fact I came across about Tetris is that uh, Tetris is considered, it's in computational theory, a hard problem. It's considered NP-complete, meaning that even a computer cannot play perfect Tetris. Huh. You can't write a computer program that automatically optimizes Tetris moves and always makes the best move because there is no known strategy for always determining the optimal move. And this is not the case for a lot of games. There are games like Connect Four or, uh, you know, plenty of other puzzle games where there is inherently a best move you can make that, you know, a lot of times humans might not have enough computational ability to know what it is, but a computer can know. Yeah, I think we can all relate to that from our Tetris playing experience because you start off with a definite strategy in mind. Generally, you want to build it up so that you can shoot down a, a, a vertical um, uh, tetromino and just clear four rows at once and then do that again do that as many times as you can but you're going to reach that point where that's no longer an option where each shape each new shape as it comes and mm-hmm. maybe you have the preview box that tells you what the next one is going to be yes. and you can try and crunch that data as well but it's very much a real-time problem from uh, from block to block yeah yeah the preview box is actually i think a really important part of tetris strategy i don't know if i mentioned that when i was describing tetris earlier i mean you've played tetris you know but the the big thing about tetris strategy is it will show you not just the block that's currently falling but what the next block up is yeah but after that it's a big mystery <laughs> and and the, even the computer can't solve this problem there is no computer that ha, that can solve tetris it's a it's a mystery. It's an ancient mystery. <laughs> I insist it is. Okay, so uh, in this episode, we're eventually going to talk about the neurological effects of Tetris on the human brain, the sort of the, the psychology and neurology of Tetris. But before we get into that, we got to mention one more thing about Tetris and culture, which is all of the wonderful Tetris knockoffs. Oh yes, that have that have come from this game. Because like anything that sells millions and millions of copies and becomes a a phenomenon. Yeah. Uh, like Tetris, you're going to see other people want to get in on the on the action uh, and put their own particular spin on it. And a lot of, many of them are great. They're perfectly serviceable. They're just complete ripoffs. Sometimes <laughs> they try and add their own thing, like trying to use a, a different polyomino in order in order to spice things up. But uh, one of my favorites is just pure fluff on top of a, a, a traditional Tetris game, and that's the 1996 release Monty Python and the Quest for the Holy Grail, a PC game which included a Tetris mini game called Drop Dead that involved fabulously throwing plague victims into a mass grave. So, each, oh, okay, so they were shaped. Yes, each uh, Tetromino 
is shaped like a medieval peasant. And sometimes their body's <laughs> bent, you know, this way or that, or they're just completely um, uh, straight. But you're, th- you're throwing those into the mass grave, and the bodies keep piling up, and they're falling faster like any kind of a Tetris uh, game, with the added feature that sometimes one isn't quite dead yet, and uh, makes uh, it makes moving it around more challenging. Oh no! Because it's you know fighting back and, and trying to, <laughs> to to wiggle free, and you just want to throw as many bodies into the mass grave as possible. Right? Yeah, you got a job to do. Yeah, so that's that's the best I've I've ever seen. Um, you, there have been various other uh, attempts to spice it up. There was a particularly it was a 2004. Uh, mini game in Mortal Kombat Deception. Oh man, they're still making Mortal Kombat games in 2004. Yeah, they still X- make them today. We I guess had, so. Yeah, and Mortal Kombat X just came out. I don't uh, think 10, I, I don't think I ever went beyond Mortal Kombat three in the arcade game version. Well, there was you know four was kind of a, a, a I think a dark point for a lot of people, <laughs> but uh, no, they put out they put out some great games uh, in recent times. Uh, but the Tetris mini game in 2004 was not actually so great. It was just like typical Tetris with some little bobblehead Mortal Kombat characters. I think they would have been far better off just ripping off Monty Python's take on it and right. just have, you know, dead monks and ninjas falling into a pit. Yeah, so uh, Katana's out there doing finishing moves on people and yeah. throwing all their dead body parts into the... I, I can see that. But they were probably, you know, pressed for time. So that seems like they've got uh, just violent variations on tetris basically yeah but then there's also the sexy take and i'm gonna leave (laughs) you the listener to explore this more on your own i don't know if there is a definitive sexy tetris but it looks like there are various scenarios that involve humanoid tetrominoes interlocking uh with each other so it's that seems inherently disturbing yeah like stacking sex i guess you know kind of a, a kama sutra um group sex take on Tetris. It's out there if you want to explore it. Uh, And then I I think they also just have Tetris with a backdrop of a naked person or something. So that exists Mm. as well. Uh, An interesting attempt to put some sort of fluff (laughs) on top of of this most perfect game. You don't need that. That would be distracting. It's Tetris. Uh, That's what I'm thinking. I mean, I... Why why are you trying to mess with Tetris? (laughs) Yeah, it seems like you would have only... That's the kind of game you would only play for a few minutes and go like, haha, that's clever, or oh, that's not really clever, mm-hmm. and then you'd move back to just playing pure Tetris. Right. Uh, one of the Tetris arcade games I saw in the in the documentary I was talking about earlier, The Ecstasy of Order, is Invisible Tetris. I didn't know about this before, but that's where you can only see the blocks while they're falling. But huh. once they land, they become invisible. I can't even imagine trying to play that. That sounds really frustratingly hard. I would Again, I'd rather just play regular Tetris. And, of course, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the various 3D forms of Tetris that have come out. Yeah. We're using three-dimensional uh, tetraminos and trying to assemble them. Uh, and I've played those before. Those, those are, I feel like those are also fun for a limited amount of time, and then you want to go back to good old two-dimensional Tetris. We keep saying Texas instead of Tetris. It makes me think that there should be a <laughs> uh, geographical representations or like you know US states represented as as uh, as square block formations that you try to fit together. Yeah. Yeah, the United States as uh, an assemblage. Like how does Tennessee fit into Texas? And <laughs> I guess you couldn't do it proportionally because every time an Alaska fell the game would just be over. <laughs> but we should take a break to hear from our sponsor and then when we come back 
we're going to talk about some of the brain science of Tetris, some of the science that's been done on how Tetris affects our minds. Hey, we're back. So it is time to talk about something that has been called in the media the Tetris effect. Yeah, or Tetris syndrome, which I, I like that one even more because it has a slightly nefarious air to it. Yeah, so I have talked about how I think Tetris is an ancient mystery. But have you ever noticed how the six rectangular panes on each half of a home window can form all of the Tetris blocks? Except, of course, the most beautiful and most cherished of all blocks, the long bar. Mm. Uh, but all the other blocks, you know, you, with, you've got the six panes arranged in the, the, the two-by-three formation. You can make the T, you can make the L, you can make the S and the Z and the square. And how the corners of the coffee table in your house are kind of like L blocks that just fit so nicely against the square block that really is the essence of this footrest. Hmm. And really when droplets of water bead together on a rain-splashed window and eventually flow away, it really is a lot like how the stacks of blocks flow away from view in Tetris once you've completed four solid lines. Hmm. And then, of course, you begin to see how the Tetris blocks do come creeping down from the darkness at night when you lie in bed and they follow you into your dreams and how... I'm going to stop you there, Joe, because this sounds like, if not Tetris Syndrome or the Tetris Effect, perhaps even Tetris Madness. Full-blown <laughs> Tetris Madness. Yeah, this is what <laughs> most people have uh, described as the Tetris Effect. It's in short, when Tetris players have dreams or mild hallucinations about the game, the mechanics and visual aesthetic of the game follow you beyond the gameplay itself into your life. You see Tetris in the world, you hallucinate blocks in yeah. places where they're not, and you dream about them as you're falling asleep at night. I definitely remember this from that Christmas that we got Tetris, playing it for an absurd number of hours, and then afterwards you close your eyes, and then against the darkness you see the blocks falling. And yeah. then you're trying to sleep at night, and you see the blocks falling, and you're dreaming, and the blocks are still falling. And it's, it was never frightening but it was just it was like unlike anything i'd experienced before it was essentially a, a paranormal experience yeah uh but but one that was so abstract so with so without uh narrative it wasn't like i was seeing space aliens or anything you were just seeing the pure uh geometric wonder of tetris uh playing through your your vision you know i looked up online to see if this had happened with any other games mm -hmm. and it certainly has i think maybe not to the same extent as tetris but i googled minecraft hallucinations i've never played minecraft but mm -hmm. i just wanted to see what you'd come up with and oh yeah i found some yahoo q and a yahoo answers and some forum threads where people are like, I'm I'm dreaming about uh, things from Minecraft and I'm seeing Minecraft blocks all over the place. This does seem to be a way in which our brains are susceptible to visuospatial tasks or uh, images that we have to manipulate in a virtual world, especially in something as addictive and engrossing as Tetris. And this has been reported on for a while now. The earliest reference I can find to the term the Tetris effect 
Uh, and this seems to be, most people say that this is the first time the term appears, is a 1994 article called This Is Your Brain on Tetris uh, from Wired. Yes. Yeah, great article. It's still yeah. up online. You can still access it. Uh-huh. Yeah, so it was written by Jeffrey Goldsmith. And if you're too young to remember the This Is Your Brain on Drugs commercials, I don't, <laughs> I don't know how widespread that reference point is anymore. Uh, it was, well, it was one of the most charming touchstones of the 1980s propaganda war against <laughs> narcotics. But guy's got an egg. He holds up the egg. He says, this is your brain. He cracks it, drops it in a pan, fries it, says, this is your brain on drugs. Yeah, great, great marketing. Uh, but but it, the, the effectiveness of that marketing is a, is a topic unto itself, for sure. Yeah, so uh, the obvious implication is uh, of Goldsmith's title, this is your brain on Tetris, is that he's sort of accusing Tetris of being a hallucinogen or some kind of psychotropic <laughs> agent. Uh, yet he also brings over the associations with addictiveness or compulsive behavior. And I just want to read a quote from his article. He says, No home was sweet without a Game Boy in 1990. That year I stayed for a week with a friend in Tokyo, uh, for a week in quotation marks, I think meaning longer, <laughs> uh, and Tetris enslaved my brain. At night, geometric shapes fell in the darkness as I lay on a loaned tatami floor space. Days, I sat on a lavender suede sofa and played Tetris furiously. During rare jaunts from the house, I visually fit cars and trees and people together. Dubiously hunting a job in a house, I was still there two months later, still jobless, still playing. <laughs> my friend, an economist, threatened a battery deprivation, but he knew my habit ran deep, knew that I could always tilt, blinded by sunlight, to a convenience store. To save face, I would buy a box of tiny chocolate-filled bears, as if AA power cells were an afterthought, not the meaning of my wretched life. Uh, and he also refers to Tetris later in the article as an, an electronic drug or, and this is a great term, a pharmatronic. Ooh, pharmatronic. I like it. I don't know if that later appeared in like William Gibson novels or something, <laughs> but it, it sounds like it should. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, Goldsmith then reports on some research we're going to describe in, in just a minute about uh, what the brain of a Tetris player looks like. Uh, but the term Tetris effect shows up later in his article where he says the Tetris effect is a biochemical reductionistic metaphor, if you will, for curiosity, invention, the creative urge to fit shapes together is to organize, to build, to make deals, to fix, to understand, to fold sheets. All of our mental activities are analogous, each as potentially addictive as the next. Ah, So once again, we see that Tetris it's a perfect metaphor for just about everything we do in our life. Yeah, I mean, not, not only just the inevitability of uh, of, of annihilation, mm -hmm. but just the just our ba the basic way that we tackle mental tasks. It, it combines the the seeking order effect. Like we're we're trying to create solid blocks out of these, you know, disordered, unfitting shapes. And so we're, we're seeking to create order, to impose order on a chaotic universe. But it also has the uh, the task clearance type of mechanic that we use throughout our daily work lives. You know, you have a you have a to do list and the, the most satisfying part of every day is crossing that thing off your to do list, which in Tetris you get you get to do constantly, you know, every mm -hmm. some number of seconds you clear a line and it disappears. It quite literally disappears in, in being crossed automatically off your to-do list. So it 
Tetris, again, mimics life. Yeah, and sometimes life throws some bad blocks at you. <laughs> just, and you <laughs> just true. have to accept that yeah. they're not going to fit into your order. But maybe that next block will help you work this one out. And eventually, you'll create some sort of order around it. Yeah, I think that's entirely true. And if you listen to these professional Tetris players, the one who the ones who get really deep into it, you know, they'll they'll talk about the the sort of the fortune goddess of Tetris, <laughs> the the Tetris god who doles out good blocks and bad blocks. And, you know, to a certain extent, the blocks you get are randomized, mm-hmm. um, they're, but they're randomized in a particular way. There's this thing referred to as a bag that keeps a certain number of blocks in it. And you get you get the blocks from the bag and then it's re-randomized. But uh, they like you can get a good run where they'll give you lots of long bars and it's very nice, happy times. See, or but you I often you can would find a, that uh, to be uh, to to be irritating though. Uh-huh. If you got too many long bars, like why am I getting all these long bars now? Right. I'm just having to just throw them on top of each other horizontally at the bottom. I need these later to to really drive home and kill. Yeah. Why wasn't I getting these long bars yeah. when I was getting like 17 S and Z bars? Exactly. In a row? Uh, th- those S and Z bars really are the worst. They're the ones that make the game as as cruel as it is. Yeah. But there was another quote I wanted to read, actually, that was from a psychologist, a Russian psychologist named Vladimir Pokilko. And this sort of addresses the Tetris effect. Uh, Pokilko was a friend and partner of Alexei Pajitnov, the creator of Tet- Tetris. And he was one of the original patients in the first outbreak of Tetris Madness in <laughs> Russia in 1984. He he got to play it before it was a, a commercial item, back when it was a secret brain infection being traded on floppy disks around in Moscow. And he says about Tetris, quote, The main part is visual insight. You make your visual decision and it happens almost immediately. Insight means emotion, small, but many of them every two, three seconds. The second mechanism is unfinished action. Tetris has many unfinished actions that force you to continue and make it very addictive. The third is automization. In a couple of hours, the activity becomes automatic, a habit, a motivation to repeat. So, yeah, you've got some explanations there for maybe some of the cognitive appeal of constantly returning to thoughts of Tetris, of it sort of taking over your brain, because you've got the, the pleasing feeling of solving a visual problem. You've got, uh, and, and the constant reward every time you solve it, you've got the unfinished action always drawing you back to the problem. There is no conclusion to Tetris. You right. never finish it. Yeah. It's and, impossible. And, it's, and so failure is never super frustrating because failure is inevitable. Yeah. yeah. And then, of course, the third, he says, is automization. Eventually it becomes uh, not so much a deliberate action, but just an automatic part of your brain. You do it without even thinking. Yeah. I do also want to mention while researching the uh, articles about the Tetris effect in the 1990s that I came across some, frankly, hilarious or at least retrospectively hilarious scare articles about <sighs> games and technology mm-hmm. destroying your brain uh, there. Oh, man, it was so funny about talking about this theory uh, from the 1990s called cyber sickness. There, mm-hmm. uh, there was a paper from the technology review in the 90s called cyber sickness virtual reality's dark side it's really funny looking back on the techno paranoia of a previous age especially when it's addressed at things that we now consider to be so inherently harmless i mean who is worried about 
A, virtual reality because it turned out to be such a bust, and mm-hmm. B, Tetris. Yeah, well, I think you could. there is a case to be made that certainly there are destructive elements to obsessive video game playing. So, oh, well, sure. Know. I mean, if it comes at a, if you spend enough time on it, that it's at a cost to your life. But right. But certainly know. not the yeah nothing that would that that uh, that really matches up to that headline uh, uh, cyber sickness virtual reality's dark side yeah but I think now we need to look at some neuroscience and psychiatry to see what's going on when you play Tetris and how it affects your brain yes uh, certainly the the research underlying uh, these Tetris observations that we've been discussing here so one of the the first big ones uh, came out in 1991. Uh, this is from uh, Richard Hare of the University of California at Irvine's Department of Psychiatry and Human Behavior. So they did what you might expect. They scanned the brains of Tetris players. Okay, this is interesting because it's not just psychology here. They're not just getting people to reflect subjectively right. on their Tetris experience, but they're gathering physical evidence about playing Tetris. What yeah. does it actually look like? Yeah, so, yeah, they're looking and actually looking at brain behavior during the playing of Tetris at varying stages. So uh, Harris suspected and ultimately found that the brain requires less energy to play higher levels of Tetris Mm. um, as opposed to lower levels, which which sounds crazy at first because we all know how how easy those early levels are. And when you first start playing it, you know, it's it's. Pretty easy goings. The higher levels, it gets so fast. I yeah, mean, that's when the stress really. Yeah, kicks you'd think in. that would be when it was just you'd have maximum um, uh, cognition levels going on. But uh, so this is what they found: in first-time users, Tetris significantly raises cerebral glucose metabolic rates, or GMRs. So brain energy consumption soars as your head cheese tackles this puzzle <laughs> for the first time. So your your brain is it's it's dealing with the difficult task and it says I need sugar, give me energy. Yeah, and especially with Tetris and I imagine especially for someone who is a you know a novice to puzzle games of this nature, you're suddenly encountering this game that is easy to get into, but drastically different in its presentation compared to anything else you've done before. Yeah, so you said, this was funny, you said in first-time users, I assume you meant players, but I don't know if you were <laughs> making a drug joke there. Uh, I can't remember, yeah, if users was a term <laughs> that I threw in or if I picked that up from the uh, original study, but... Um, but so, so those were the, the novices. What happened after that? Okay, so after four to eight weeks of daily doses of Tetris, uh, GMRs sink to normal while performance increases sevenfold, okay? And so, ultimately, Tetris Masters uh, have the lowest final GMRs of all. So as your skill increases and you get more and more, you you become the Tetris Master, the thing it tells you at the end. If you do really good, congratulations, you are Tetris Master. Um, Your brain uses less energy to get you there. Yeah, I mean, uh, in effect, Tetris trains your brain uh, and become to become more efficient at carrying the cognitive load required to solve the puzzle. Man, that seems so counterintuitive. Yeah, but here's the thing: those high GMR levels they leave you feeling all amped up, and uh, and this is uh, this is your brain amped up to learn something new and guzzling down that energy to make it happen. And uh, once it has uh, re- acquired the skills, it ceases to guzzle all that glucose. So so yeah, it's your brain. Crunching this new problem, figuring out how to how to solve it, and figuring out how to solve it uh, with uh, with a, with a lower energy expenditure. Yeah. So as Hare says, the brain might just become more efficient as. 
the Tetris becomes or the Tetris solving program in your brain, as he says, becomes more unconscious and automatic. Yeah. All right. So the next study we're going to look at uh, answers that question that many of you might have. What if the dude from Memento, the guy, the guy Pierce character, uh, what would happen if he played Tetris? Okay, so you're, you're not talking about Joe Pantoliano. No, we're talking talking about Guy Pierce's uh, uh, no short no uh, no new memories, dude. Yeah, right here, a, okay. Anterograde amnesia. He can't form new episodic memories exactly. of things that have recently happened. Yeah, what would happen if he played Tetris? Well, luckily, there's a study that examines this. <laughs> this is a 2000 study by Harvard psychiatrist Robert Stickgold. So he set out to study. Uh, a similar feeling to that of playing Tetris, uh, that of a mountain climber who continues to feel the rocks beneath his or her hands after a day of climbing. And I imagine this is similar to, you know, that feeling as you lay in bed after a day on the beach and the surf where you still feel the surf, or certainly something that... Uh, that comes to my mind, and also and also reminds me of uh, of Tetris hallucinations and Tetris dreams. Is that when I worked in newspapers, I did a lot of pagination. I was uh, like in design to build these pages in the paper. Sort of a form of Tetris, really. Yeah, I rem- I would often refer to it as word Tetris because uh, it's just words and images, articles, and you're f- blocking all the pieces together. And a lot of times they are shaped like Tetris blocks to form this complete whole. And, of course, there's the added stress, though, that this is a product that is eventually going to be printed and sent out to all these people, and you don't want there to be any errors. And there's so many so many places that there can be an error. If only you could have the crutch of adjusting the kerning on a real Tetris block. Yeah. So, the, uh, uh, yeah, a little, uh, little pagination humor for, for, for everyone out there. <laughs> um, but, but I remember having dreams at night mm-hmm. where I was in my bed, laying in my bed, and the pillows in the bed were either illustrations or articles on a on a pa- on a page in InDesign, and that if I moved in the bed at all, it would upset the arrangement of the front page of the newspaper. Oh, yeah. So it's that sort of thing. Or if you're if you're a Tetris player, it's Tetris hallucinations. If you're a rock climber, it's uh it's kind of rock uh, hallucinations that you experience after the fact. Yeah. Uh, so I got to mention talking about the study, the title of it because the title is too good to miss. It's called Replaying the Game, Hypnagogic Images in Normals and Amnesics. Normals. <laughs> normals. Yeah. Normals. All right, normals, this is how it all went down. So Stigold asked 27 participants to play seven hours of Tetris over the course of three days. There were three groups involved in the study. Twelve novices. Okay. Okay. Novice Tetris players, 10 experts. They're referred to as Tetris masters. (laughs) And five amnesics with extensive bilateral medial temporal lobe damage. These five individuals were absolutely unable to learn and retain new episodic memories. Okay, so if you sat them down and taught them how to play Tetris and then met them again the next day, they would not remember that that had happened. Exactly, yeah. So this is what they found. So the novices and experts all reported that they saw Tetris pieces floating down in front of their eyes as they were going to sleep at night. Not surprising. We know that's how it works. It's expected. Yeah. However, the even the uh, amnesics saw the blocks at night, even though they could not remember playing the game. And as it turns out, they actually could play it just fine. The, uh, quote, the performance of the amnesic patients showed only minimal, albeit significant improvement over seven hours of play. So, so their brains were still learning to play Tetris, even the, though they had no memories. Yeah, they, they weren't learning as well as right. the other novices, right? But they still were learning. Yeah. Uh, 
strange. Yeah. And and this gets in, of course, into the, the fact that there are num- numerous ways that memory works in the brain. There are different forms of memory. The, the, the two most important ones here for our purposes uh, are as follows. First of all, in the hippocampus, you have, uh, this is the area that registers those episodic memories, the very memories that the amnesics here could not form, explicit memories of actual life events, episodic memories. Yeah. What happened yesterday? What did I do? Yeah. What was it like playing Tetris? But then uh, the cortex registers implicit memories. This is stuff we learn but don't necessarily have conscious access to. So might this be something like how to ride a bike or things like that? Yeah, things, uh, or uh, I imagine many of you encounter this with with passwords uh, or things you type into the computer. Sometimes you can't. You can't say what it is. You have to do it to, and then yeah. rediscover what you're actually doing. Yeah. You've made that method memory, but you, but you don't have a direct recall of the event. Right. So this uh, study, the experiences of the amnesics here, uh, suggests that Tetris syndrome is as much a matter of implicit memory as anything else, and that the brain is extracting memories from our experience even subconsciously. Wow. Um, and then furthermore, uh, as memory consolidation... Uh, takes place during sleep, Tetris visions may stand out as a manifestation of that process. Okay. So, So, yeah, I think this is taken as evidence in favor of the hypothesis. I don't know to what degree it's a hypothesis or a widely accepted theory, but the idea, at least, that memory consolidation is is what dreaming is largely about yes. in sleep. Uh, do, do you know how accepted that idea is? I mean, is that pretty solid or is that like just sort of a solid. hypothesis? I feel like it's pretty solid based on uh, an episode recorded earlier in the year where I was researching uh, the power of naps and the importance of naps. Uh, uh-huh. Episodic memory formation came up a lot in that. So I, I think it's pretty accepted. Huh. Okay, well that's interesting because the idea that uh memory consolidation takes place during dreams and sleeping is going to come into play in a uh a paper that I'm going to reference in the next episode. Yeah, which will also be Tetris uh, themed. So th- this science is fascinating because uh it explains something that is disturbingly common. I mean, one of the, it would be one thing if every now and then some weirdo said, "Well, I I hallucinated Tetris blocks," but this seems to be completely normal, completely widespread for people who play the game. It takes over their brain in this way and sticks with them and they hallucinate the blocks later. So I decided, as I said earlier, to search around and see if this happened with other games. Like I mentioned, there are people talking about Minecraft hallucinations and there are people who talk about hallucinations related to other games. So the the principle of seeing the world in terms of visuospatial game elements or even experiencing hallucinations of auditory and visual elements from games is not unique to Tetris, though with Tetris it might be stronger than average, or maybe even much stronger than average. Uh, But anyway, that leads some experts to want to group what we're calling the Tetris effect uh, under the broader category of what's called game transfer phenomenon. Hmm. Uh, So there has been some research on this, but essentially it's been based on interviews and interacting with people who play video games and cataloging their experience to see if they transfer elements of game content or game interface into their real lives. I've seen accounts of individuals claiming to see health bars from playing Uh World of Warcraft, and I definitely remember, like, the only other game transfer um, phenomenon that I 
can attest to in my own life would be from playing way too much Grand Theft Auto Vice City. <laughs> and I can't, for the life of me, I can't exactly remember what I was seeing. But I would go from playing a lot of that to then driving to work. Uh, which Just was, stealing cars all day. Well, no, yeah. luckily it didn't go that far. But certainly the the experience of, of driving the cars in the game was 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 impacting the way that I observed driving a car in real life. Huh. Yeah. Which was a little scary considering all the things you do with cars in that game. That is a little scary and that figures big into how the media has covered this uh this scientific recognition of uh video game of game transfer phenomenon. But uh there there are much smaller, more innocuous versions of this. I mean, have you ever said, let's press pause? Or I just leveled up on something about a real-world situation. Or if, achievement uh, unlocked, right? Exactly, yeah. yeah. You, you, somebody, somebody tweets, achievement unlocked, Swedish meatballs for breakfast. I mean, <laughs> uh, that, is, that is an example of game transfer phenomenon. You're, you're porting something about the game content or experience into your daily life outside it, the game. It kind of goes back to our techno-religionous episodes that we recorded, where we talked about how you can't help but incorporate technology into your symbolic metaphorical understanding of reality yeah and so uh, i'm often think of like in in many different topics that apply to the human experience i often think in terms of the health bar and some other type of bar yeah uh, whether you talk particularly i remember in researching willpower and how willpower works and it in its state its status is this kind of depletable resource in the human mind you end up thinking about video games yeah. as the logical way to make sense of that and, and to picture it. Yeah, so some media coverage about exactly the kind of thing you're talking about, the intersection of, of science and video games, is, of course, not so sensible. And, and as we've said, this example is no exception. In response to the game transfer phenomenon, one, I know one U.K. newspaper ran the headline, Gamers Can't Tell Real World from Fantasy. <laughs> And generally much coverage has focused on sensational, violent implications of this kind of faulty premise. The researchers themselves disown that kind of coverage. They're like, no, that's not what we're saying. Almost all of this is harmless. And they sort of, they compare it to the ways we incorporate other metaphors from other types of content and media we consume into our lives. I mean, it's just you could express things in terms of a TV show you watched or a book you read. When you participate with media, you you get some metaphors or some uh, you know cognitive sticking points from it. Yeah, like it, uh, it's not that weird. Yeah, like think of any other phrases that we have. You know, fast forwarding through something again, pause, pressing pause on something, yeah. or uh, let's put a pin in this, which of course indicates that the speaker uh, likes to torture an, uh, insects in his spare time. <laughs> so keep that one in mind. Yeah, the uh, the malevolent lepidopterist <laughs> of your office. Yeah, so while the uh, using the phrase achievement unlocked or something isn't all that weird, I do still think the Tetris effect is remarkable and strange. The idea of these uh, c these consistent and nearly universal Tetris hallucinations and dreams. And that makes me wonder, well, does the Tetris effect belong in this category of game transfer phenomena? Or is it something unique? Is it something on a separate and a different level, pretty much? I feel like it might be, and in uh, in the next episode that we uh, that we're doing on Tetris, uh, I think we'll see elements of that. Uh, now, I've been thinking about it in terms of Tetris being the purest form of the drug. Yeah, and you can certainly, and maybe you should dilute the purity of that drug 
when you're uh, applying it in certain scenarios. Right, because like spice, it it may enable you to to have some precognition and to stand <laughs> at the top of the dune of the universe of space-time and see beyond what normal humans can, but you've got to keep coming back. Oh man, I wonder how spice would affect your ability to play Tetris. Like what would it, oh, what's man. it like when you'd a guild see, navigator plays? You'd play see Tetris? the entire bag. <laughs> your preview screen would have hundreds of blocks in it. Oh, and then what what well the guild navigator of course would choose would would make sure to pick the best block possible for the next turn, whatever the safest block choice is. But as we've showed, there is no such thing. There huh. is no optimal Tetris play. There, there's better and worse Tetris play, but there's no perfect Tetris play. Ah, so would you be able to find that golden path in, through Tetris? You couldn't, I guess. Yeah, it would it's be an unsolved difficult. game, yeah. Huh. Anyway, we are so excited about the science of Tetris that we're going to come back next time to talk about some very fascinating Tetris research, uh, uh, more about how Tetris interacts with our brains. Uh, we're going to talk about why Tetris feels so good to play. But we're also going to talk about Tetris-based therapies for uh, yeah. the, the Tetris cure, essentially. Yeah, so we're going to continue to dive into the power of Tetris, but then what can we do with that power? How can we utilize it? How can we harness Tetris and use it to improve our lives? In the meantime, if you haven't played Tetris in a while, I encourage you to unlock that ancient secret yet again. <laughs> open the puzzle box, play a little bit of Tetris, and then come back and visit with us again next time and and share in the deep mystery and wonder of the Platonic puzzle universe with us. So, until next time, check out StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find uh, all of our blog posts, our podcast episodes, our videos, and indeed the landing page for this episode will include uh, links out to some related materials on the site, as well as some of the resources we've been discussing here with you today. And if you want to get in touch with us and let us know your personal Tetris history or your thoughts about uh, cognition, human neurology, and, and video game play, you can email us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Thank <laughs> you.